Hi, I'm David Rothkopf, the CEO of the DSR Network and host of the Deep State Radio podcast. Here at DSR, we have always believed that in a world as complex, fast-moving, and full of risks as ours, we all need access to the best minds. That is why we have created the leading network for expert podcasts on the issues of the day you care about. We go in-depth on politics, the law, national security, foreign policy, intelligence, defense, climate, and new technologies with regular and special guests that are the leading voices in their fields. We also offer daily updates on global news, our DSR Daily, and on a key story of the day through our partnership with the New Republic. That is why over a million times a month, people like you choose to spend time with our hosts and guests. Membership is what supports this, and members get special benefits, including bonus content in virtually all of our podcasts. It's a big deal, and it's a good deal. Our monthly membership price is going to go up for the first time in our history on March 1st. So now is the time you can lock in our founder's rate of just $5 a month. To do so, go to the dsrnetwork.com and click on membership. It's that easy, but don't delay. Today's rates will only be available for a few more weeks. Join us, support us. Go to the dsrnetwork.com right now. Thank you. Nine, 12, 10. 28 2 23 This is Deep State Radio coming to you direct from our super secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of Snark in Washington DC and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. So hello and welcome to another podcast of We're All Gonna Die Radio. I'm John Wolfstall, your co-host, and I'm pleased to be here with my partner in crime, Heather Williams. Good morning, Heather. Hi, John. How's it going? Uh, I'm okay. Uh, I'm okay. Didn't get much sleep. We have a new puppy, so things are a little chaotic at home, but you know that's just the state of the world these days. Um, Heather, I know you're excited. I'm excited because even though we, are, uh, we geek out pretty regularly, this is a really hardcore nuclear geek out episode today. Um, we're joined by uh, Fred Kaplan, who is a renowned journalist and author, um, has written multiple definitive books about the history of nuclear weapons policy, both in the United States and globally. So happy to be joined by Fred. Hello. Hello. Um, and uh, in a little bit of corporate nepotism, I'm happy to introduce Mackenzie Knight. Mackenzie is a Scoville fellow at the Federation of American Scientists. Full disclaimer, I'm technically her boss, but she does whatever she wants because she's good at it. Good morning, Mackenzie. Hi, thanks for having me. Mackenzie is also going to have to tell us all the dirt about working for John. So we can get to that um, in the second know, half of the show. That's definitely <laughs> behind the paywall today, Heather. So, you know, yeah. if you really want the good stuff, you got to pay for it, as you know. So, um, Today, we're talking about a shocking, shocking issue that a Pentagon program is behind schedule and massively over budget. But this one really gets to, I think, a, a fascinating element of American foreign policy and security policy because it relates directly to uh, the U.S. nuclear weapons program. Um, and uh, it relates with the country's 
planned new long-range nuclear-tipped ICBM intercontinental ballistic missile. So I I thought I would ask Heather to just sort of explain the basics on what ICBMs are and what the Sentinel program is, and then we're going to turn to Fred McKenzie to talk about what's actually happening with the program and what might happen over the next couple of months. So Heather, tell me all about ICBMs. So I was really excited about the ICBM modernization conversation today, John, because Sometimes we agree. It doesn't always happen, but I think this is going to be one of the ones when we do not agree. And that always makes for a more interesting conversation other than the Red Sox-Yankees rivalry. So uh, in terms of ICBMs and modernization, the United States has to modernize its entire nuclear triad. So air, sea, and leg platforms, the entire modernization plan is expected to cost around $750 billion. That is billion with a B. One of the legs of this modernization plan is the ICBM, Intercontinental Ballistic Missile leg of the triad. The others are the submarines and the bombers. But today we're just going to talk about missiles. Um, So originally the new ICBM, uh, which is going to be called Sentinel, uh, the old ones are called Minuteman 3s, but the new one's going to be called Sentinel. And original Sentinel was projected to cost around $96 billion dollars. And Northrop Grumman got the contract to develop the Sentinel around 2020. And initially, the unit, like each one of each like cost per unit, each one of the missiles, was supposed to be $118 million. Million with an M. Well, that has changed. They will not be $118 million per unit. They are now projected to be $162 million per unit. This is a 37% increase from uh, what was expected. Um, the increase in costs, according to Northrop, according to the Air Force, this is mainly because of updates that they're making for more contemporary technology, for command and control. There's new launch facilities. So the old versions of these, the Minuteman 3s, I mean, those went into the ground in the 60s. Um, I think the newest Minuteman 3 went into the ground in 1972. Uh, so apologies to anybody born before 1972, but that makes them of the older persuasion. So these missiles... Uh, the new version of them, it just really needs updating. It needs modern technology uh, to really bring them up to speed. Um, But one thing to just flag before we turn to um, our distinguished guests who have thought about this um, quite a lot and written some really fantastic pieces on it recently, um, is that if you go over 25% of projected costs for a defense program, it triggers this thing called Nunn-McCurdy on Capitol Hill, um, which means that uh, DOD is going to have to do a review of this program to certify that there are no cheaper alternatives. So it's all to say, I think we're going to be talking about Sentinel, ICBMs, missiles, and cost overruns uh, on a few future episodes. This probably isn't the last time we're going to talk about this, John. Um, So that's a quick rundown of where we're at with ICBM modernization. That is great, Heather. So now I want to turn to Fred, because Fred had a good piece this past week on why are we spending $131 billion on new nukes? This is in Slate, where he is a regular uh, columnist. Um, And uh, Fred, you had a, 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 I don't have to disagree with Heather. It sounds like, I'm going to guess you might disagree with Heather, at least on the idea that Heather's framing may have been a misslip, that we have to modernize all of these programs. So tell us a little bit about the article and what your take is on the Sentinel program. Well, let me just say, John, do you want to go into Obama era history or is that a little too close? Oh, no, I'm happy. You already published everything I know every, anyway, Fred, in your book, The Bomb. So happy to go into that. But You had but, direct experience of this. That, that's, I'll, I'll go back a little further than Obama, and then maybe you can uh, 
many years ago. That, well, why do we have a triad, which which you know is kind of as holy to the nuclear community as the as the Trinity is to devout Catholics? Uh, it's the Father and Son and Holy Ghost of nuclear deterrence. Why did this happen? Well, the main reason is that there's an army, an air force, and a navy. If we had had a space force in 1960, we'd probably have, you know, uh, missiles orbiting the space for for an extra hedge as well. But then the Air Force got the contract for the ICBM and the bomber, and they made peace with themselves on that, although initially the bomber faction didn't like ICBMs at all. The Army got ABMs, which was going to be a big thing, and then it turned out it didn't. And so then rationales were developed to an existing bureaucratic situation. Now, some of these rationales made a certain amount of sense. For example, for many years, ICBM, especially as both sides started developing their own ICBMs and hardened them in blast-resistant silos, land-based ICBMs were the only weapons in this triad that could destroy that were accurate enough and prompt enough to destroy the other side's ICBMs, maybe before they got a chance to launch them when there were liquid fuel uh, and that sort of thing. You know, they could get there in half an hour, bombers it would take hours and hours, and they were accurate. They could kill the things. Starting in 1970, the Navy started putting Trident II D-5 missiles in their submarines, which are just as accurate as ICBMs, which had the same what's called hard target kill capability. The ICBMs, the land-based ICBMs, became kind of obsolete or at least redundant. I mean, you could, you know, it complicated the, the enemy's targeting and so forth. But still, it did not have, it could not do, it was not uniquely suited to do anything except be vulnerable to the other side's ICBM attack. So I don't know exactly when this happened. When I when I did a book about this a few years ago, I, I, I looked to find out who came up with this idea, but I couldn't find it. But something emerged called the sponge theory. And the idea was this. Okay, each side now has about 450 ICBMs. They used to have 1,000. Uh, if we got rid of the ICBMs, the Russians or I guess Chinese, could pull off a near-disarming attack with a very small number of missiles. They could aim at the handful of bomber bases, submarine pens, and National Command Authority in the United States, then say, okay, you can only retaliate with your subs at sea and your bombers up in the air. If you do that, we're going to clobber your cities, and therefore our deterrent would be deterred. Now, there's a lot of funny things about this argument. I mean, it used to be that, that, that you know, ICBMs were put out in the middle of nowhere so that no, oh, oh I'm sorry, I, I left off a key thing, that the ICBMs, if you got rid of ICBMs, that would, that's what would happen. But if you have 400 ICBMs, the Russians would have to launch a major attack to destroy those 450 ICBMs a president would have to respond. Tens of millions of Americans would die. So therefore, they, the, the ICBMs act as a sponge to soak up a Russian first strike, and therefore 
deter them from launching one. Now, it's a funny argument because in the old days, ICBMs were put out in the middle of nowhere precisely so that very few people would die from collateral damage, radioactive fallout, and so forth. Uh, but let's, let's and, and oh, also in the old days, when we had a thousand ICBMs, the, the people who made these kinds of arguments thought it would be nothing for the Russians to launch 2,000 warheads to kill these thousand ICBMs. They would have no hesitation to do so if they saw an advantage. But let's say that there is something to this argument. My question then becomes, do you need 400? Uh, would 100 be enough? You would still kill tens of millions of Americans from radioactive fallout if you launched the, the warheads against 100 ICBMs. How about 50? How about a dozen? Why do you need, why do you need 450? It, it doesn't make any sense. And also, if this is just for deterrence, if these ICBMs are not targeted at, at things that you must destroy uniquely, why can't the old ones just sit there, take the attack, uh, get rid of 300 of those? Some of them are going to work, and you don't know which ones. I, I have not heard a claim by anybody that these missiles are about to, uh, <clears throat> you know, to just become completely unworkable. I, now, I, I, I am in favor of of a new submarine. Okay. So, so Fred, Fred, let me let me just stop you there because it's really I think that's a fabulous layout of sort of the history of this. Um, but I think we also want to turn to sort of what happens next. And you've put your finger on it that I think turns now to Mackenzie's excellent piece, which she posted on the Federation of American Scientists website, uh, and we're working on an op-ed um, so she can promote this more widely. Is um, the Pentagon now has a legal requirement to review this program, and it has to judge it against a set of criteria that I think get to the specific issue of what do we actually need and is it essential? So Mackenzie, can you walk us through what has to happen under the law and what are some of the things that you expect the Pentagon to argue? Yeah, absolutely. So um, for a little bit of background here, uh, the Pentagon was legally required to notify Congress that this program was in breach of the Nunn-McCurdy Act um, because there's a certain threshold of um, how much of a cost overrun uh, kind of sparks that legal requirement. So Heather touched on this a little bit. Um, in the beginning, there's actually two levels of breaches under the Nunn-McCurdy Act. You can be in significant breach or you can be in critical breach. And the Sentinel program is in critical breach of the Nunn-McCurdy that, Act. That just is, sounds bad. Which is worse. It's worse. Yeah. That's um, bad as it sounds. So, yeah. So a 15% cost overrun is what triggers a significant breach. A 25% cost overrun is what triggers a critical breach. The Sentinel program has a 37% cost overrun. So it is a very bad critical breach. Um, yeah. So... Back in mid-January, the Pentagon notified Congress that it was in critical breach of the Nunn-McCurdy Act. Um, so this has now triggered what is going to be a several-month process of different reviews and expected actions by the Secretary of Defense and the Pentagon as a whole. Um, so the first is that the Secretary of Defense is required to conduct a what's called a root cause analysis and a renewed cost assessment of the program to assess what caused this massive overrun. Um, and looking forward, how much is it actually going to cost? Because our previous estimate was obviously wrong. 
Um, and then they, he also has to submit a new selected acquisition report, which is basically just a summary of the defense program to Congress as well. Now, when a program is in critical breach of the Nunn-McCurdy Act, it is almost always terminated unless the Secretary of Defense submits a certification to Congress that has to meet a few requirements. But if Congress accepts that certification, the program is allowed to continue and stay alive. So this is something that we're expecting to see from Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin. And his certification has to meet four requirements, which are that the program is essential to national security, that the new cost estimates have been determined by the Pentagon's director of cost assessment and program evaluation to be reasonable, that the program is a higher priority than programs whose funding will be reduced to cover the increased cost of the program, and then finally, that the management structure is sufficient to control any additional cost overgrowth. So we're probably going to see this type of certification from Secretary Austin in the coming months. This is going to be a several month process. Um, I think uh, it can take up to you know 220 days or something like that from the start of the uh, the notification of the breach to um, you know the end of this non-McCurdy process. Uh, so this will be playing out over several months. Lots of different assessments and forms have to be submitted um, and things have to happen. And if the program does avoid termination, then the Nunn-McCurdy Act still requires further action. Um, they require that it be restructured entirely to rectify the root cause of the overrun, and they will have to achieve new milestone approvals. Um, but yeah, so you also asked, you know, what what arguments are we expected to see from the Pentagon? Um, I think that it's going to be a lot of the same that we've already seen from them to justify the Sentinel program from from the start, which is that it's essential for national security because the Minuteman three ICBMs are too old. They've been around since 1970 and we need a newer, more reliable system to replace them. Um, and I think that's going to be the real core of the argument. There's a couple more nitty gritty things we can get into, but I think that's where I'll leave it for now. Can I ask a question? Because McKinney please, said please, for I wasn't aware of. They have to reduce other programs by the same amount as the overrun of this. They can't just add more to the, to the defense budget overall. That's a good question. Um, I, as far as I understand, um, it, it, I'm not a lawyer, but if I'm going to make attempt to make a legal interpretation of these requirements. It sounds like, um, you know, in the, the requirement that the program is a higher priority than programs whose cost will be reduced in order to make this program happen. Um, it sounds like you're correct in that other programs, um, I believe defense programs, um, but I'm not entirely sure, but other programs will be cut um, in order to, to pay for this overrun. Although, um, although but, you could imagine the Pentagon coming in and saying, we... we we don't need to reduce other programs to meet this. We will be requesting additional funding, which may then, because again, you know, famous for bet the most commonly expressed language in Washington is I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> so I actually don't think we have a lawyer on the call. So I don't know how we're actually operating in Washington, but, um, but yeah, it, it seems to me that there's language they might be able to use to sort of avoid that. Yeah. Let, yeah. let me, I, let me try to tie. Sorry. Oh, Heather, go ahead. Well, I wanted to jump in. I, Mackenzie, I also had a question for you. That was a fantastic summary, first of all. Thank you so much. I learned more about Nun McCurdy than I, I, I think I needed. Well, no, I learned more than I um, wanted to know, but things that I <laughs> um, So I, I, I thank you for that. 
Um, one thing that jumped out to me is going to be the bigger context in which this is happening and where this lands in terms of debates on the Hill. And I'm also thinking of you know the Strategic Posture Commission report, which we mentioned a few times on this podcast, that came out and said um, the the U.S. strategic arsenal needs to change either in either in terms of size or just something different. So, how are you interpreting this news um, and this kind of triggering of the DoD requirement process about Sentinel? How do you think that's going to interact with this um, kind of what I'm hearing is seems to be like growing attention um, on the Hill, but also around Washington about the two peer problem, you know, the rise of China, what it's going to mean for the U.S. strategic posture. How, how are you thinking on that? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's also a big question. I will do my very best um, to answer it. I think that the way that I'm going to think about this is in terms of implications going forward for force structure and how that might change because of this news. Um, so Fred touched on this a little bit ago. Um, currently in the U.S. arsenal, we have 400 ICBMs in 450 silos. We don't say in which 400 in, or in which silos because there's 50 that are empty and we keep that secret. Um, but we have 400 ICBMs. Um, and the Sentinel program is meant to be a one-for-one -one replacement of Minuteman 3 ICBMs. So in, there is intended to be 400 Sentinels that replace the 400 Minutemen that we currently have. Um, it's actually kind of ironic because when the Air Force conducted its initial analysis of alternatives for the ICBM program back in like 2014, I think, um, they included kind of this arbitrary requirement that we need a force level of 400 ICBMs. At the time, it wasn't actually anything that was required under law by the by the um, you know NDAA or the sorry the National Defense Authorization Act or um, you know any other legislation. It was just something the Air Force decided we need 400 ICBMs, and that was something that people criticized at the time was um, you know that this seemingly arbitrary requirement. Why do we need 400? Interestingly enough, that did become a legal requirement starting in uh, 2017. Since then, every year, the National Defense Authorization Act has included a provision that the Pentagon has to maintain an ICBM level of 400 or higher. Um, and so they're not legally allowed to go below the 400 level. Because of this overrun, which includes a two-year schedule overrun, meaning it's behind schedule by two years, um, they might dip below that 400 level, um, putting them into legal trouble. So the question really going forward is how are they going to meet that requirement? How, do, how are they going to adapt the ICBM force to meet this requirement that has um, been put upon the Pentagon by Congress? Um, you know, it could, it could mean that they, what they have said so far, what Air Force officials have said is that they're going to have to life extend some of the Minuteman 3 ICBMs, something that they have actually said was impossible um, in recent years as part of the justification for the Sentinel program. So most likely they're going to have to concurrently operate some Sentinels and some Minuteman 3 ICBMs at the same time in order to stay at the 400 level and not dip below it. Um, and, you know, something that the Strategic Posture Commission report actually uh raised as a possibility um, is to MERV some of the ICBMs and or you know if you have to dip below the 400 level 
you can at least MERV some of them, which is multiple independently targetable re-entry vehicles, um, which is just basically when you put multiple warheads on one ICBM um, in order to kind of meet that force requirement in a roundabout way. Um, so we'll see what they end up doing, but it will be interesting to see, you know, kind of if they have to swallow their words a bit and life extends a Minuteman 3s, which they said they couldn't do, um, or if we're going to start seeing some MERV'd ICBMs. We'll see. So and let me... Just stop for a second, add a couple of data points, and then we're going to take a short break. Um, but um, there are a couple of facts here that I think are worth bringing to the conversation. The first is the Air Force was required to do an assessment of alternatives in looking how to meet its force structure requirements. Uh, they did so, but it was never released to the public. And so one of the challenges here is we're being told by the Pentagon, we absolutely have to have this program. Um, it, there are no alternatives, but they won't let us see their homework in terms of what options they looked at to determine that this was the right thing. Now, I say this in part because I was in the government at the time and I saw the assessment of alternatives. And let's just say I don't have huge confidence that it was really the old college try to look at some creative solutions for how we might get out of this mix. Um, the other piece here that I think is um, leading to some of the frustration is um, a number of people, including those who were involved in uh, helping to support the modernization program under President Obama, myself included, predicted as early as 2012 that the Pentagon was trying to do too many things at once in the modernization program. We were building a new submarine program, the Columbia class. We're building a new ICBM program, the Sentinel. We're building a new bomber, the B-21 um, uh, Raider. Uh, we're building a new long-range cruise missile, right? We're modernizing every single element of the nuclear um, deterrent, and there's only so much defense industrial base to go around. And uh, as a, when I was at the Monterey Institute, Mackenzie, shout out to the Monterey Institute, um, uh, I wrote a report with Jeff Lewis, who's been a, a guest on this program before, called the Trillion Dollar Nuclear Triad that predicted we would have disarmament by default because we were going to have cost overruns and schedule delays and the programs would age out and we'd have to pull down capabilities, leaving the president short on options that he and the Pentagon had determined were necessary. And so I think what we're seeing is this prediction play out um, that the Pentagon is going to have to scramble because they wouldn't agree to either life extend the ICBM, as Fred suggested, maybe put fewer in the ground, um, or just retain some of the Minuteman instead of modernizing all of them, retain a smaller number of them. I don't think anybody, well, Fred may be, and I think there's an argument for it, is saying we should just get rid of ICBMs. That's a decision we should make right now. I think politically that's not going to happen. The reason the National I Defense- I agree with you that politically it's not going to happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the reason the National Defense Authorization Act has it is because of the ICBM caucus. These are the senators from the ICBM states and the states that make ICBM rockets um, um, are well-placed on the authorization and appropriations committee to make sure that that part of the um, pork barrel stays intact. Um, and the Air Force is very eager to support that. So I think the question is really, what does the United States need for defense and deterrence? And is this the way to spend our money? And I think we can get into that in, in, in a couple of minutes. But right now, we're going to have to take a short break. Um, for those of you that are just joining us for the first time and are not members of the Deep State Radio Network, we thank you for tuning in. Um, if you want to listen to more, both for, on this podcast and the whole family of DSR podcasts, it's $5 a month. You can go to deepstateradio.com, become a member. Uh, you'll get access to all of the content, including um, behind the paywall, including finding out more about the ICBM and the nuclear uh, theological arguments that date back 
before the Holy Trinity, Fred. Um, uh, but for those um, um, just tuning in, we're going to have to say goodbye. And for those members of the DSR network, just stay tuned.